Welcome to What Happens Next. My name is Larry Bernstein. Each week since the outbreak of the pandemic, I've hosted a conference call to discuss aspects of COVID-19. The discussion follows a unique format. Each speaker only gets six minutes. This keeps the conversation concise, interesting, and informative. After everyone has a chance to speak, there's a question and answer period. At the end of the program, I ask each speaker to spend a minute to discuss something that they are optimistic about. Our first speaker today is Darren Asimoglu. Darren is the MIT professor of economics, and I've asked him to answer the question, will the post-COVID world have too much automation? Our second speaker is Katie Kaufman. Katie is an assistant professor at the Harvard Business School. She has recently published a paper about a survey that she took that showed a surprising result that older people seem less pessimistic and concerned about health risks for COVID than younger people, despite the obvious health higher death rates for the elderly. We then move the discussion to this week's focus, which is whether the U.S. and the West are at the end of the liberal international order. Our third speaker will be Steve Krasner, who is a professor of international relations at Stanford and is also a senior fellow at the Hoover Institute. Steve has recently published a book entitled How to Make Love to a Despot, an Alternative Foreign Policy for the 21st Century. I am not sure, but I suspect that the title was the publisher's idea. Steve will discuss power shifts and the liberal international order. Our fourth speaker is Alexander Cooley, who is a professor of political science at Barnard College. Alex will talk about the thesis of his new book entitled Exit from Hegemony, The Unraveling of the American Global Order. Our fifth speaker is John Eikenberry. John is a professor of politics and international affairs at Princeton, and he is the author of the forthcoming book, A World Safe for Democracy, Liberal Internationalism and the Crisis of Global Order. John Eikenberry will discuss his recent article in Foreign Affairs entitled The Next Liberal Order, The Age of Contagion Demands More Internationalism, Not Less. Our sixth and final speaker is John Mearsheimer, who is a professor of political science at the University of Chicago. John Mearsheimer will discuss his recently published article, Bound to Fail, The Rise and Fall of the Liberal International Order. We've had over 1,100 new contacts added to what happens next in the past couple of weeks. Please use the link that I sent you to automatically add your friends to the permanent list. Next week, Rick Banks will return to what happens next as my co-host. The topic will be the intersection of racial justice and the wealth creation machine known as Silicon Valley. The speakers will include former Stanford president and Google board chairman John Hennessy, benchmark capital partner Bill Gurley, whose firm funded Uber and Dropbox, Charlie Moore, founder and CEO of Rocket Lawyer, John Rice, founder of Management Leadership for Tomorrow, Nicole Taylor, CEO of the Silicon Valley Community Foundation, Darren Dodson, founder of Illumin Capital, a for-profit social impact investor. All right, the introduction is over. Let's start with our first speaker. Darren, please go ahead. Great. Thank you, Larry. It's a great pleasure to be here today to share some of the implications of my recent research. And the bottom line is I will argue there were deep problems in the U.S. labor market that were related to technology, but not inevitable problems 
problems that resulted from the choices that we made about the direction of technological change, and that the COVID-19 pandemic is set to exacerbate and deepen these problems. The best way of understanding these problems is to consider how labor market has evolved, how labor demand has evolved over the decades following World War II. If you look at an inclusive measure of the overall labor demand, the wage bill paid by the private sector in the U.S., in the four decades following World War II, it shows a remarkable pattern. It increases very steadily at about two and a half percentage points faster than population growth, which means that more or less every year you have a real wage growth of about 2% a year. Then sometime around the 1980s, there's a sea change. This private sector wage bill first slows down and then completely flattens out so much so that today private sector pays only a little more than it did in 1999. The fallout from this includes the sharp drop in the labor share in national income in the US. But even more importantly, it is connected to the fundamental changes that have happened in the US wage structure. If you look at wages by different groups, for example, by gender and education, pretty much every group in the decades following World War II experienced that 2% magic real wage growth. This was the period of a rising tide lifting all boats. Sometime around the 1980s, there is a big change. First, there is a sharp increase in inequality. Some groups are gaining at the expense of others, but even more consequentially for social and political reasons, perhaps. For men of low and middle education, real wages, instead of growing, are about 20% to 2%. They are starting to fall very sharply. Some of the consequences of this change in wage structure and employment structure have already been felt, but more will be felt. So why is this? Well, such a complex phenomenon has many causes, and I don't want to downplay any of them, including trade, the erosion and the real value of the minimum wage deunionization, but my own work with Pascual Restrepo shows that changes in the nature of technology are at least as important. In particular, uh, summarizing a lot of research, I will say around the 1980s, there is a large shift in the nature of technology. In the decades that followed World War II, you have plenty of automation, but that automation goes hand in hand with other technological changes that are creating new opportunities, new tasks, new jobs for workers. And it is the combination of these two forces that's bringing both productivity growth and wage and employment growth for workers. Around the 1980s, this pattern changes. So you have an acceleration in automation, and as a result, especially in manufacturing, you see a lot of workers being shed and the labor share falling very sharply. But even more consequentially, other types of technological change, changes dwindle. And this imbalance is at the root of the slowdown in the labor, growth that I, labor demand growth that I mentioned. So why does this happen? If you ask you know, Silicon Valley leaders, they would say this is the inevitable and beneficial march of technology. But our research suggests that it's much more as a consequence of a social and political equilibrium. We have made a number of choices. These are related to what level of support government provides to R&D and research and where that support goes, the corporate strategies and corporate structure 
So it is not irrelevant that U.S. technological trajectory is determined by a handful of tech companies whose business model is based on automation, replacing fallible humans with machines and algorithms. And also tax policy. For example, in some recent work, what uh, Pascual Restrepo, Andrea Manera, and I show is that U.S. tax policy has always been biased in favor of capital, but it has become much more so since 2000, so much so that equipment and software are taxed essentially at zero today, whereas labor pays over a 25% tax, leading to an artificial and powerful bias in favor of automation. These technological changes resulting from the choices that we have made, as I've argued, have fundamental implications, but this was true before COVID-19. COVID-19 has changed the situation only the direction of deepening the demand for automation from companies. In the short run, of course, we are benefiting from the digital technology. But if you ask companies, 70% of them say that they have either taken steps or are planning to take steps towards greater automation because social distancing, worker absence, worker uh, infection are all making machines and algorithms more profitable. But if the diagnosis that I have offered here is right, this means that this will deepen social problems, inequality, paucity of good jobs, and the social and political implications of this will be very costly. This is not inevitable, as I have pointed out, but it would require a multi-pronged approach, which would involve changes in the government support for innovation, and the types of innovation will have to be different, changes in corporate structure and corporate priorities, and major changes in the tax structure so that we reverse or start reversing the extent of the bias towards automation, which has all of these economic and social costs. Thank you. Thank you, Darren. Okay. Um, we'll come back to Q&A uh, with Darren in a minute. In the meantime, uh, our next speaker is Katie Kaufman. As mentioned before, Katie is an assistant professor at Harvard Business School, and she's going to speak about her survey results showing older people are less pessimistic about the health risks of COVID-19. Katie, please go ahead. Thank you so much for having me today. Uh, I'm excited to be here and have a chance to tell you a bit about this work with Pedro Bordalo, Nicola Genioli, and Andre Schleifer. So the emergence of a global pandemic presents a fairly unique opportunity to study belief formation. We have this very surprising, quite high stakes, extremely novel event impacting a hugely diverse population of individuals. Where do beliefs, in particular risk perceptions, come from in a case like this? Our approach to exploring these questions is to conduct a survey targeting large, diverse groups of Americans at different points in time, running waves of the survey approximately nine weeks apart. And by collecting data across geographies, ages, races, and incomes over time, we hope to capture how risk perceptions respond to individual, local, national, and global conditions. Today, I'm just going to be telling you about the first wave of this survey, which was conducted May 6th through 13th with over 1,000, uh, actually over 1,500 Americans. So our goal is to understand the beliefs our respondents hold about the risks associated with the novel coronavirus. So first, we ask about risk of infection. So consider 1,000 people very similar to you. And we explicitly tell them, i.e. in terms of age, gender, race, socioeconomic status, zip code, health status, et cetera. How many out of those 1,000 do you believe will contract COVID-19 in the next nine weeks? Then we ask about chances of hospitalization and death, conditional on contracting the disease. So think again about 1,000 people very similar to you, this time who contract the disease in the next nine weeks. 
how many out of those 1,000 people who contract the disease will require hospitalization? Similarly, how many out of those 1,000 people like you who contract the disease will pass away? So today, I'm only going to have time to focus just on our most striking results, the relationship between risk perceptions and age. So scientific consensus seems to suggest that the risks associated with COVID-19 increase with age. And yet, our survey finds that individual risk perceptions run exactly counter to this. So consider individuals' beliefs about the chances of contracting COVID-19. For our youngest group of respondents, those between 18 and 34 years old, the median estimate is that 87 of the 1,000 people like them, i.e. young, will contract COVID-19 in the next nine weeks. That is almost 10%. For our oldest group of respondents, those aged 70 and older, the median estimate is just 30 of the 1,000 people like them, i.e. the older people, will contract this disease. Again, that's 87 for the young versus 30 for the old. Now you might say, well, older people believe they're less likely to contract it because they're taking more precautions. So to push on this, we can explore the questions that instead ask about the risk of hospitalization and death conditional on contracting the disease. Here, precautions should not play a role in assessment, and yet we find the same striking pattern. For our youngest group of respondents, again, aged 18 to 34, the median estimate is that 75 of the 1,000 people like them will require hospitalization conditional on contracting the disease. For our oldest group of respondents, those 70 older, the estimate for people like them is just 25, a third of the size. Similarly, when we consider chances of death conditional on contracting COVID-19, younger people believe 20 of every 1,000 people like them will pass away. Older people think the number for people like them is just 10. So this relationship between age and optimism for chance of infection, for hospitalization, and for death persists controlling for all the other demographic characteristics we collect. So you might wonder, if you're like us, how can these individuals not understand the relationship between age and risk for this disease? But it turns out they do understand it. In addition to asking our respondents to forecast the risk for people like themselves, we also ask our participants to make estimates for how the risk of death, again, conditional on contracting COVID-19, varies with different demographic characteristics, including age. So all respondents in our survey are asked to assess the likelihood of death conditional on contracting the disease for 1,000 Americans under age 40, 1,000 Americans between 40 and 69, and 1,000 Americans age 70 and older. So when we consider responses to this question, both the young and the old clearly perceive the risk of death to be increasing with age. For young respondents, the median estimate of death risk increases from 27 when assessing Americans under 40 to 100 when assessing Americans 70 and older. That is, they think the risk is more than three times as great for the oldest compared to the youngest group. Similarly, our older respondents increase their median estimate from five for the youngest age group to 25 for the oldest age group. So they all seem to get it that risk increases with age. It's simply the case that for each age group we ask about, the younger respondents forecast greater risk than the older respondents do. In fact, maybe the most striking thing, at the median, the young perceive a greater risk of death for those under 40, 27 out of 1,000, than the older perceive for those 70 and older, just 25 out of 1,000. So these patterns are striking and surprising. We were surely surprised when we saw the data. But I'll say two things. We recently ran a second wave of the survey in mid-July with another 1,500 Americans, and the same pattern strongly replicates. We've also found the same pattern in data collected by the World Bank across six different countries. Of course, the huge open question is why, 
and we're still in the process of trying to understand this. So far, we've seen that this result is not explained by differences in location, in income, in education, in health status, in media consumption, or in politics. We're hoping we can get to the bottom of this puzzle in future waves of our survey. Thank you so much, and I look forward to hearing your comments and questions. Great, Katie. Um, first, I want to give a shout out to Steve Krasner. Steve, if you, I sent you an email with the phone number. If you can call in, um, that would be great. I think you may be on the web link. Uh, because Steve isn't on, have access through the phone, I'm going to skip ahead and uh, go to Alex Cooley next. Um, Alex is a professor at Barnard College. Uh, he's a professor of political science, and he'll be discussing his new book, Exit from Hegemony. Go ahead, Alex. Great. Thanks a lot, Larry. So, yeah, this is based on new book co-author with Dan Nexon from Georgetown University, where we're looking at the demise of liberal international order and also an accompanying article in this summer's foreign affairs. So the bottom line is the liberal international order as we've known it is unraveling. There are elements of the order that will remain liberal, but we're in a very different place than we were in the 1990s, which was America unchallenged and unbound. The decline is terminal, it's not cyclical, right? So this isn't the 1970s and 80s where pronouncements of the death of US hegemony and leadership were met with changes in the international system that strengthened the US role. And most importantly for our argument, despite the cover, which we did not pick on the book, uh, that has uh, Donald Trump on it, Trump is an accelerant, but not the root cause of this, right? These are trends that have been in effect since the mid-2000s. So even a Biden administration will have to cope with the fallout and complexities of this changing order that is far more contested uh, than we've seen over the last decades. So the main arguments that we make is that the very architectures and institutions of the liberal international order that was set up by the U.S. and its allies and then strengthened after the collapse of the Soviet Union, uh, the ones used to maintain dominance are now openly being contested and transforming the order itself. So many of the kinds of processes and actors and organizations that we associated with promoting liberalism, in fact, now are challenging it. So three areas that we look at, one, regional organizations and international organizations. Um, a lot of our understanding on regionalism was based on the idiosyncratic experiences of the European Union and NATO, where we assumed that regional integration brought democratic principles, norms, and values. Um, but instead, what we see right now is China and Russia establishing new organizations in both the areas of security and finance and economics, Shanghai Cooperation Organization, Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, the Eurasian Economic Union. These embody different norms, different agendas, and most importantly, they are networking with each other. They are altering the ecology of international order in a way that looks a lot more dense and contested right now. Moreover, existing IOs, you're seeing uh, China especially mount leadership challenges to the point where they head for agency. We can get into some WHO politics that, you know, the defunding by the U.S. of the WHO arguably paid into China's hands. And even groups like the U.N. Human Rights Council are now actively pushing uh, an agenda that's very sympathetic uh, to China uh, and its own understanding of global sort of human rights. Second mechanism that we talk about is um, U.S. losing its patronage monopoly as a supplier of public goods. So it used to be if you were a weak state and a small state, so the Ecuador's, Djibouti, Sri Lanka's, Kyrgyzstan's, Tajikistan's 
I study the stands in a lot of my research. Um, you would go with the prevailing wind, right? You would sign human rights treaties even though you didn't believe in them. You had no choice but to turn to the IMF and the World Bank if you needed short-term financing. Now, that process is fundamentally different. There are alternative patrons where you can go to for your development needs, for your financing needs. They don't extract the same economic uh, and political conditions as the U.S. and West did. Uh, and uh, that makes them all the more appealing, especially if you have an autocratic regime. And then the final mechanism, and perhaps this is the most interesting uh, in the book, is that we have more fundamental contestations now of transnational networks. In the 1990s, a lot of scholarship in international relations and other policy understandings assumed that transnational networks would inevitably promote liberal causes, protecting the environment, upholding human rights, promoting gender equality. We viewed NGOs and activists as these kinds of nimble foot soldiers that were kind of more clever than states, that would undermine their sovereignty and eventually enact change. Well, states have struck back. They've enacted laws that have stopped liberal NGOs in their tracks. In over 70 countries in the world, we have NGO restrictions. Plus, states now are enacting their own NGOs, GONGOs, government-sponsored uh, non-governmental organizations that promote very statist and national agendas. Uh, in addition, we have new transnational e-liberal networks, um, groups that are mobilizing uh, to promote different kinds of norms, World Congress of the Family, a movement initially founded by two Christian right groups, now is networked with Eurasian oligarch backing and focuses on promoting traditional notions of the family, restricting LGBT rights and reproductive rights. So if you take all of these three mechanisms together, the kinds of actors and processes that we thought looked like the liberal international order actually look a good deal more illiberal uh, than before. Uh, this is to say, though, there's not going to be a magic boom, a single moment in which we can say, oh, we have now made the official slide into post-liberalism or illiberalism. COVID certainly is magnifying the trends, and the U.S. leadership uh, by example or by non-example is also uh, uh, playing a role here, but for our money, uh, these will continue to unravel the order and we're going to be uh, it, just as sort of the three years between 1991 and 1994, sort of an acceleration of the liberal order, we believe we're seeing its deacceleration now. Thanks so much. Thanks, Alex. Okay, uh, our next speaker is John Eikenberry. Uh, John is a professor at Princeton in the Professor of Politics and International Affairs. Uh, he will be speaking and defending the liberal international order. Go ahead, John. Thank you, Larry. It's great to be on this panel with uh, my friends and colleagues. Um, my piece that I want to talk about is in the current issue of foreign affairs, and it offers a sort of world-weary defense of the U.S.-led liberal order. Uh, obviously, the 75-year-old order is in trouble. It may be unraveling, uh, certainly under attack, uh, even as we speak from both inside and outside. And we will have occasion, I suspect, to talk about some, some of those illiberal forces and counter movements that are afoot. But I try to make the case for preserving and rebuilding a sort of retrenched coalition of the democracies. So in the spirit of liberal internationalism, I'm making a case uh, in, in part based on logic and interest and constituencies, uh, in part a kind of normative case, uh, but it's not a, a, a kind of end of history argument uh, uh, that is often associated with the kind of liberal vision of the 1990s, but rather a more 
uh, as I said, world-weary vision, uh, uh, liberalism of troubled times, uh, uh, and making the case for why in this moment uh, liberal democracies have a reason to stick together. And therefore, in the article, I give more attention to Franklin Roosevelt in the 1930s when, when there was a sort of extinction moment for liberal democracy. We're not quite there, but it's that kind of moment when we're talking about preservation of our basic values, our way of life, rather than can we do more globalization. So it's that kind of um, moment of, of trying to preserve things that we value. In this article, I make three arguments. Uh, first, um, I argue uh, that we should remember the accomplishment, that there was something here that over the 75-year order has been incredibly successful. In the 1940s, uh, the United States and its uh, democratic partners built a far-flung, complex system of relations. Unlike anything the world had seen before, it was a different kind of political order. And as we will, I'm sure, argue, it has gone through different eras and configurations, but it has had a kind of layer of complex uh, relationships, regional and global, economic, military, political, built around institutions, alliances, partnerships, bargains, distribution of burdens and responsibilities, shared values, strategic interests. And it became a kind of ecosystem, a kind of environment, uh, a terrarium in which uh, uh, vulnerable creatures could, could live uh, and make their way, a kind of environment for which liberal democracies could cooperate, protect their interests and values, and seek security and prosperity. And um, indeed, under the auspices of this order, this post-war system has done lots of things. And it's been built on, if you will, a set of convictions, four convictions, that trade and exchange generate mutual gains, that uh, rules and institutions facilitate cooperation, that shared democratic values create political solidarity and interests and capacities, sorely tested today for sure, uh, that democracies can do things differently and create a, a higher order kind of uh, a relationship, not simply a kind of bare-bones anarchy, and a conviction, fourthly, that in a world of rising economic and security interdependence, liberal democracies uh, can only survive together. And, of course, the high point of this ideology might be the Atlantic Charter or Roosevelt's Four Freedoms. But over the course of the last 75 years, there have been accomplishments, and I would mention six. And I'll just list them quickly. The democracies reopened the world economy, uh, creating a kind of golden age of economic growth and rising income for decades. Secondly, a framework was provided to integrate and reintegrate Germany and Japan, allowing them to redefine their uh, identities as great powers, as non-nuclear great powers, and join a co collaborative uh, order. Third, Germany and France, going to war three times in 70 years, found a new way to uh, bury their divisions and uh, uh, come together on a project of European Union. The European system, the European Union is a kind of silent partner of this larger system that's still there today and um, uh, by some accounts uh, uh, actually uh, making some progress in trying to cope with the current environment. Fourthly, the U.S., Britain, Germany, France, 
uh, other countries, uh, we forget this, transform their, their democracies into social democracies or Christian democracies. Each country did it differently, but the, in, the crises of industrial democracy that were reverberating for the first half of the 20th century were reconstructed uh, with, with state, uh, welfare states and social safety nets and new growth coalitions that brought a new level of prosperity and security. Fifthly, the trilateral countries, because East Asia is part of this, uh, created new institutions for multilateral organization of their, of their regimes. And then finally, new democracies found kind of a safe haven within this ecosystem, this system, uh, to uh, support and protect their own transitions away from illiberalism towards market and democratic uh, reform. Overall, the value of this order um, uh, over the last 70 years has been one where it's provided a kind of world system for states to seek mutual advance. And stepping back, uh, arguably, if you put all the different world orders of the past from the ancient period into the modern period and look at them on a table, you would have to argue that in world historical perspective, this order uh, has been perhaps the most successful one ever organized, uh, defined in terms of metrics of wealth creation, f uh, protection of physical security, and a glimmer of social justice. Uh, so there is something here that you would not want to easily or readily escort from the stage of history. Uh, at the very le least, there's something here to defend. Uh, quickly, uh, I'm running out of time, but just say a few things about what went wrong and what, what, what do we do next. What went wrong? In my view, uh, you'll have to kind of read the book that's coming out in September. But in effect, uh, the liberal order was never a global order. It was, it was from its inception a, a order inside of a larger system. It was a subsystem. During the Cold War, it had, uh, as a result, a kind of club character. Uh, states were inside of something. They were inside of a, a mutual aid society. Uh, they were a free world. They had an ideology. They had rules and leadership and the like, um, and they bought into to be inside a suite of responsibilities and rights and obligations. And the story I tell is in the 1990s and even more so today, uh, that liberal order expanded. It was in some sense the victim of its own success. It over, uh, overspilled its, its, its bounds. It was a Carl Polanyi problem of a mobilization beyond the foundation that supported it. And the logic of conditionality was undermined, and it became not a club, but I, I use the metaphor, a kind of shopping mall where states could wander in and, and, and go to this place or that place, but never really had to make a commitment. And of course, this is what China took advantage of. Finally, uh, what can be done? Is, it, is, the, is, is the last chapter written? Well, I think there is one more uh, chapter to be written. There's one more cycle. Uh, and this would involve a, a kind of world-weary regrouping of the democracies in the face of, of the great challenges that we see in front of us, starting with the two central features of this order, a trade pact and security alliance ties, and renegotiate those two features. Um, Secondly, expand the uh, constituency. There's a very healthy D10, Democracy 10 group, that isn't just the G7, but includes South Korea, which is a kind of poster child of how this liberal order has benefited uh, large parts of the world. Uh, uh, Australia, other middle states want to get into a reconstructed liberal order. And then uh, 
Thirdly, reframe what it means to be liberal international. It's not let's promote globalization till the cows come home, but let's use it as a pragmatic set of institutions and mutual relationships that allow us to manage our economic and security interdependence. And in the final analysis, uh, if there is to be any future to the liberal order, it will always be a kind of, as it always has been, a kind of two-level game where democracies find reason to cooperate, at least uh, to, to preserve their way of life, uh, and secondly, to reach out beyond them uh, to the larger Westphalian order, where, where regime type doesn't matter for cooperation. Both these logics of cooperation uh, would need to go forward. But in the final analysis, uh, if there is a future to liberal international order, it is because the current proponents of such an order uh, buy into the thinking of Benjamin Franklin, who, looking at the 13 colonies on July 4, 1776, said, we, the, uh, us 13, must hang together or certainly we will hang separately. John, thank you very much. All right, now for something completely different. Uh, John Mearsheimer, a professor at the, uh, political science at the University of Chicago on Bound to Fail. Go ahead, John. Thank you, Larry. Uh, my comments are, are quite similar to Alex's and uh, quite different from John's. So it's nice for me to be able to follow the two of them. Uh, my basic argument, of course, is that the liberal international order has died, or if it hasn't died, it's in its final death throes. And to understand why that's the case, I think it makes sense to trace the history of the liberal international order. And what I'll do is uh, trace that history, employing my theoretical framework to illuminate uh, what I think was going on. The conventional wisdom about when the liberal international order started is reflected in John's comment that the order is 75 years old. And he, like most people, trace its origins back to 1945 to the end of World War II. Uh, I think that that's wrong. Uh, I think that the order that existed during the Cold War between 1945 and 1989 uh, was a Western order. It was a bounded order. It was neither a liberal order or an international order. That Western order that those of us who are old enough to remember that existed in the Cold War was restricted to the West. On the other side of what we used to call the Iron Curtain was another bounded order run by the Soviet Union that included institutions like the Warsaw Pact, Comic-Con, and Common Forum. And these two orders waged security competition with each other. Uh, they were certainly concerned with economic issues, but the main purpose of this Western order and the Soviet-led order was to wage security competition. So you didn't have a liberal international order between 45 and 89. You had these two bounded orders. But then, as everybody knows what happens, in 1989, the, Soviet, uh, the Cold War ends, and in 1991, the Soviet Union disappears. That means that order in the East goes away, and the Western order wins. Not only does the Western order win, but we are in what's commonly called the unipolar moment. This means that the United States, this liberal state, is incredibly powerful. 
there is by definition no other great power in the system. So the United States does not have to worry about security competition as it did in the bipolar world. In a unipolar world, the sole pole doesn't have to worry about security competition, balance of power politics. Instead, it's free to pursue its ideological whims. So what happens from 1990 forward is that the United States goes about trying to spread that Western order that existed on part of the globe during the Cold War over the entire globe. Think about NATO expansion. Think about the EU expansion that went along with NATO expansion. Think about the color revolutions in Eastern Europe. Think about the Bush Doctrine, which is all about spreading democracy to the Middle East. Think about engagement with China, how we plan to bring China into the liberal international order. And the belief, of course, was that we would all live happily ever after. This was not a realist order. It was a liberal order because there was no reason for the United States to worry about security competition or balance of power politics. And it could concentrate on trying to make the world over in its own image by promoting this liberal international order. What happens, though, is it runs into serious trouble. Uh, not in the 1990s. The 1990s is the heyday of the order. But come uh, the early 2000s, trouble begins to happen. And today we're at a point where most people believe the order is in deep trouble. Now, what happened? There are two things that happened. The first thing is that the order contains the seeds of its own destruction. For example, if you get into the business of promoting liberal democracy all over the planet, it's not long before you end up fighting wars for the purpose of promoting democracy. And these, of course, turn out to be failed wars. Uh, there are all sorts of other problems that come with the order that lead to its demise. These are internal problems. But the most important reason that the order is in trouble today and is in effect doomed is the rise of China and the resurrection of Russian power. It's hard to believe, but the United States actually went to great lengths to help China turn into a great power, in effect to turn into a potential peer competitor. I'm still amazed that this happened. But not only did China turn into a great power, but when Putin came to power, he brought the Soviet Union, excuse me, he brought Russia back from the dead. So what that means is that today we are in a multipolar world. Great power politics is back. Everybody understands this. And once great power politics is back on the table, once you transition from unipolarity to multipolarity, you can't have a liberal international order because the great powers all have to worry about security competition or balance of power politics. They have to primarily behave as realist states. Furthermore, you're not going to have an international order of any consequence in the future. You may have a thin international order, but you're going to end up with two bound orders, one dominated by China and one dominated by the United States. Just as during the Cold War, you had two bound orders, one dominated by the United States and the other by the Soviet Union. All of this is to say the shifting of the tectonic plate from unipolarity to multipolarity guarantees that the liberal international order has seen its last days. Thank you. Thanks, John.
All right, so I think I'll start the questions uh, with John Eikenberry. John, you just heard uh, John Mearsheimer's comments. Um, where do you find exception? Yes, uh, great. Well, I, my old friend John and I do, uh, I think, agree and disagree. I think we agree a little bit about the 1990s and the expansion of the order and, and the consequences of the order, including the rise of China and the way in which that has uh, generated new conflicts and a, kind of agonistic sorts of logics that have infused the, the system. And, and we can come back to that, although I disagree with China being a spelling the end of the, the liberal international order. Uh, in some sense, the fact that you now have a rival modernity project, uh, as you did in the 30s and 40s, when liberal international order thinking was really first created and pursued, uh, you have the ingredients for sharpening the argument, which kind of order do you want? Do you want to let go of, of the uh, institutions and arrangements that have been built around protecting liberal democracies uh, and go for something else? Or do you want to uh, come back to basics and try to recreate uh, your coalition of democracies? But let me step back and, and say I think we do have a fundamental difference about the historical narrative. Uh, for me, liberal internationalism has been around for 250 years. It's taken different forms. It's been picked up by governments uh, during the Anglo-American era in different ways, but it really was uh, fundamentally conceived and pursued in the 1940s and afterwards. And that really, it was inside of a bipolar system, but John is wrong in thinking that that order was not a liberal order, that inside order. Uh, it was not simply an order created to wage security comp competition against the Soviet Union. Indeed, the order and its logic and the kind of commitments the United States was going to take to make sure that it happened were conceived at the very time the U.S was cooperating with uh, Stalin uh, at, at the various meetings in Tehran and, and, uh, and Yalta. But even before that, read the, read the, the diaries of Mackenzie King, the, the Canadian prime minister who came to the White House during World War II and became quite friend, fr friendly with FDR. And their talk about post-war order, it was liberal order thinking, uh, and it had nothing to do with the Soviet Union. Indeed, you can argue that there were two order-building projects built after uh, World War II. One was what John suggests, how do we keep the Red Army out of Europe? How do we wage this bipolar balance of power struggle, which was real, no question about it. But there was another imperative that the same people were struggling with, and that was how do we, pre present, how do we present, uh, prevent a return to the 1930s? And it was that... Uh, thinking about how you create structures to make the world safe for democracy, to offer a counter to fascist uh, uh, political economy, the new order that, that Hitler was bringing forward and that Japan had in an imperial form. So when you look carefully, and I, as I have in my new book, at the liberal internationalists of the 1930s that had been, been burnt and wounded by the failure of Woodrow Wilson, they evolved, uh, most of them, on both sides of the Atlantic, and they did become more realistic that we need to get our geopolitics right, but they also became more 
serious about the complex nature of the order they would have to build, and they believed more so than they did ever before in the 1930s, and certainly in the 1940s, that this liberal democratic complex would have to be built, or become, would need to become the anchor for a larger world system. So just to cl- conclude here, uh, I think John's realist theory, which is elegant and wonderful in its uh, it's, its breadth and scope cannot, it's like a pair of glasses that doesn't, don't allow you to see things. He can't see things that are very important in the Western experience that were there prior to his story, which then makes sense for his theory, waging uh, uh, security competition. That's what John needs to see. That's what his theory expects. But there was something else going on, and it was in, in many ways more profound. What was done inside the West was not simply a functional response to balance the power imperatives coming from bipolarity, but in some sense it, it preceded and in many ways defined what the imperatives of bipolar balancing entailed. So the causal arrows in various ways go the other direction, not only a, a, a prior set of dynamics, but the, the causal direction is different. Uh, so uh, I think uh, the, the, the message that comes out of that is that liberal order is not one thing. In fact, it's a kind of misnomer. Uh, uh, in, indeed, I'll just, I don't know whether I should take credit for this, but the first scholarly use of the term liberal international order was in a paper I wrote with Dan Dudney in 1999. And the New York Times did not use the word liberal international order until 2005. So we're using a term to describe or debate what was the character of an order uh, that the people themselves did not use that term to describe. And they used terms like free world, uh, uh, western system, uh, 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 Pax uh, Democratica, um, and other terms uh, uh, to define what in some sense, didn't have a term. It, does, it didn't fit or ordinary categories. Uh, uh, so uh, it was a complex system that was not entirely liberal. It was, it was a liberal order in, in two respects. One is it had liberal features, openness, rule of law to some extent, but it was also a liberal order in that it was an alliance of democracies. And there's nothing inherently liberal about a, an alliance, but that's part of the order. Uh, and those features uh, are still with us today. It's not as liberal in the kind of more precious sense that Alex wants to use to measure whether it's with us or not, but the deep fundamentals, uh, I would be uh, surprised if the deep fundamentals did not continue to manifest themselves in one way or another, even in the midst of this crisis. All right. Uh, again, something completely different. Uh, Steve Krasner has joined the call Steve, I, I didn't get you to let you do your six minutes. Um, Steve is a professor of international relations at Stanford and a senior fellow at the Hoover Institute. Steve, fire away. So, Larry, thanks for having me back. I'm sorry that I was so technologically challenged. I have listened to the whole call on various different medias, but I finally got one that seems to have worked. So, you know, basically, I'm going to make an argument which is close to the argument that John. Alex have made, and I'm going to leave John out there in his, in his lonely self. I mean, if you look at the period immediately after World War I, the United States was clearly the dominant power. If you look at Sink's words, which are something that political scientists have used to measure power, 
the United States had about 40% of world power. It's now down to about 20%. If you look at American, um, it's now down to 14%, and China passed the United States, actually, according to this measure, in the early aughts. So it's, the China's about 20%, the U.S. is about 14%. If you look at American alliances in East Asia, it's very hard to see how the South Koreans are going to maintain their alliance with the United States. China's by far their largest, uh, their, their largest uh, direction of exports, more than twice that of the United States. Uh, Japan and is about tied with China and the U.S. So I would assume that that's an alliance that will probably stay. If you look at the South China Sea, the Chinese have built artificial islands. They've climbed the Dine Dash Line. Um, they've ignored the international panel, which basically didn't favor uh, the claims that they were making. So I think, and if you look at the United States, I mean, the United States is claiming freedom of navigation, it's claimed that UNCLOS, which is the United Nations Conference on the Law of the Seas, and we haven't even ratified the United Nations Conference on the Law of the Seas. So I think in, the, in terms of the challenges uh, that are presented by China, they're really formidable. Um, and now I'm going to rely on a recent book by Chris Brose, who was um, the staff uh, director for Senator McCain. Uh, the United States has lost all of the war games that it's played against China. Uh, China's built anti-ship missiles. Um, we clearly have to protect our aircraft carriers. We've devoted ourselves to large, very expensive manned systems, platforms is what Bros calls them, um, whereas the Chinese have, have basically built swarms of missiles which could be very problematic for us. So I think if you look at the international environment, it's very hard to see how the United States will be able to maintain its position in, um, in the South China Sea. However, I think China is challenged by, I mean, although it's now allied with Russia, it will not be allied, it's unlikely to be allied with Russia in the future. Japan is unlikely to ally with China, not just because of history, but also because it's an island power and it's almost as powerful um the india is clearly aligned against china so i think that if china expands it's likely to expand into central asia and not likely to go beyond that but and and there are kind of fixes to the united states in terms of its military capability although it's difficult to see how those would take place um i'd like to actually switch now to the domestic side of things um and this is very much in line with what darren asimoglu argued which is if you look at the United States, increasing numbers of people have become alienated, increasing numbers of people are living worse than their parents. Um, there are what, um, two economists at, at Princeton, Casey Deaton, have called deaths of despair from alcoholism, from drug overdoses, and from suicides. Declining life expectancy for whites in the United States without a college education has declined over the last few years. That's pretty alarming. And it's very unlike, I don't think this was a question of, of just choices that were made by the U.S. Uh, that were kind of random or made in ignorance, but they were choices that were made by political parties, both Democrats and Republicans, and it's very hard to see how that will change. So I think while the United States has had a very effective system, uh, it's had strong, strong rule of law without a very interventionist state, 
Um, it's not an accident that the U.S. has been in the first place in terms of its technological revolution, but it's very hard to see what political factors would lead a large part of the American population not to be as alienated as they now are. So while I think that our international problems are fixable but difficult, our domestic problems are really hard, and it's really difficult to see how they might, they might be fixed. So, Larry, thanks for having me on. Okay, Steve. Um, I'm just going to follow up, uh, Steve, with a direct question right back at you. Um, you know, you focused on the growing military power that China has, the fact that they've won those war games. Uh, but you also mentioned that some of their neighbors view them with uh, trepidation and, and, and caution. And so if you use Mearsheimer's uh, bipolar order, um, they can either choose to join the U.S. order or the Chinese order. Um, Chinese relations with many of its neighbors are is not good. Um, you mentioned Japan isn't good. You mentioned India is not good, um, and Australia is more of a natural partner uh, for the United States. Who do you think will end up in the Chinese order, and how will that affect this bilateral order, uh, military and economic? Uh, yeah, so I, I think this, I, I think the sort of natural place for China to explain is Central Asia. I think while it now has an alliance with Russia, it's likely to be temporary. There are lots of Chinese, there are not many Russians living in Siberia. But I think the Chinese model will look very appealing to many rulers in Africa and Latin America. They're basically autocratic. They're not democratic. Um, as you know, that's not. It's not to say that I think China will def definitely triumph in the long run. It may actually fail in the long run. But I think there are many places around the world, in the Middle East, in Latin America, in Africa, which would find China a more appealing model than the model that's offered by the United States. The United States might be great for everybody, but it's not necessarily great for autocratic rulers. Okay. Um, I'd like to bring Alex into the conversation. Um, Alex, you mentioned the role of um, some of the international institutions. Uh, you particularly uh, mentioned the potential defunding of the WHO uh, and a fear, particularly by the Trump administration, that a number of the large international institutions may have been co-opted to fit the interests of China and opposed to the interests of the United States. Could you uh, explain what, what's going on, why the Trump administration feels that way, and why you think that might be consistent in a Biden administration as well? Yeah, so, um, yeah, let me, let me address that and, and then quickly hit on a couple of points that have come up in the discussion. So I think it's clear that the logic of the Trump administration is one of transactionalism and relative power, right? And this idea that if you strip away all of this institutional stuff, multilateralism, norms, international obligations, what are you left with? You're left with relative military power. And in that world of deal-making, short-termism, um, and relative power that the U.S. can compete uh, uh, just as effectively as it ever has before. So these calls to defund organizations that we don't agree with or that we feel are being infiltrated by or carrying the agenda of rival powers, you know, makes sense from that logic. Um, the problem is that Sometimes threatening to defund something can work as a negotiating tactic, 
especially when the U.S. is indispensable to the operation of that global governance mechanism. So think about the threat to defund the international sort of postal union. That was effective um, because you can't have an international postal union without U.S. participation. And in the end, the Trump administration extracted significant concessions from the Chinese in terms of sort of freights and rates. The problem with WHO, though, is that in the middle of a global pandemic, uh, the organization is going to operate. Uh, despite its problems, its, um, you know, carrying sort of the Chinese line on obfuscating the origins of the crisis, its uh, kind of, you know, refusal to sort of, uh, uh, you know, take on, uh, you know, the initial sort of spread of the virus and its mechanisms. Um, but that's, that's the global organization we have, right? We could probably get together and make something new, but it's, that's going to take quite a few years. And so by withdrawing, all you've done is cede to China greater, uh, a greater role, uh, more funding, and potentially a greater leadership um, sort of capacity. So uh, I do think in this particular case, sort of the Biden administration might try and claw that back. Um, but the overall trend uh, is one towards you know, greater uh, Chinese influence and a sort of slow transformation of these bodies the way they work. To John, I just want to say just one thing. I think it's interesting. I think, you know, it might be the possibility that some of these mechanisms and processes of, uh, you know, the liberal order, um, you know, have been recast and have been fundamentally transformed as a result of being coded as security issues as opposed to ordering issues. So the one example that comes to mind is something also that was mentioned by uh, John Mearsheimer, so the color revolutions and the roles of NGOs, right? It used to be the case that we, you know, autocrats around the world, especially in Eurasia and the Middle East, they regard NGOs as kind of nu nuisances, right? Political annoyances who are sort of mobilizing civil society, sort of, you know, bringing sort of the spotlight on sort of, you know, corruption and repression stories and so forth. But with the color revolution, right, uh, in places like Ukraine, Georgia, Kyrgyzstan, as well as the Arab Spring later, um, NGOs go from being viewed as political nuisance to political threat by regimes, right? And so these ordering mechanisms that are viewed initially as espousing these kinds of values that you sort of tolerate and sort of try and keep to the side, all of a sudden are now transnational security threats the way other threats are coded as transnational security threats. And so so, so I think there's, that, that's a palpable shift that happens in the mid-2000s. And then just to Steve's point, since I am a kind of a Central Asia buff, um, I think you're already seeing Chinese influence uh, in Central Asia, but the Chinese are very careful about playing it down in public. They are very conscious about giving Russia deference in public, saying this is Russia's sphere of influence. But in practice, to sort of you know, speak to sort of Steve's point, um, Tajikistan uh, admitted that it was hosting a Chinese military base and that China, in fact, had taken over the patrolling of certain parts of the Tajik-Afghan border. And the Russians weren't consulted on this. Uh, a group of experts were brought in after the fact and told that this is what's going on here now. So again, I don't think you're going to have an aha moment when China takes over Central Asia, but I think it's just going to be this gradual sort of, you know, penetration, one state function after another. And I think they're always going to be mindful of not advertising it because they don't want to embarrass the Russians. Thank you. Larry, this is John Mearsheimer. Can I ask Steve Krasner a question? Fire away. Steve, uh, 
many people make the argument that the Chinese and the Japanese, excuse me, the Japanese and the South Koreans and lots of countries in East Asia have to choose between the United States and the Chinese. And the argument is usually that China has this powerful economic hand to play and we provide security for these countries and they have to go one way or the other. Couldn't we have a situation that's analogous to what you had before World War I, where you had a tremendous amount of economic intercourse inside of Europe, and at the same time, you had a wicked security competition between the Triple Entente on one hand and the Triple Alliance on the other. In other words, these countries in East Asia can continue to have economic intercourse with China, but at the same time be part of a security architecture run by the United States that underpins the security competition between China on one side and the United States and China's neighbors on the other. Yeah, so John, yeah, of course you're right. And I'm not, I'm not exactly sure what the answer is, but if I were to look at South Korea and Japan, I think there are two clear contrasts. One is South Korea is more economically dependent on China, A, and B, in terms of the security threat to South Korea, which is basically North Korea, it's the Chinese that can help and not the United States. You know, contrasted with Japan, I mean, it, it is heavily dependent on China, but it's also heavily involved with the United States and doesn't have the same sort of security problem. So I would imagine that Japan will maintain its independence, whereas it's very difficult to see how South Korea over the long term will maintain its autonomy from China. Now, I mean, all of that is contingent on the Chinese being able to maintain the level of economic success which they've had in the past, which actually I think is pretty unlikely. Um, but, you know, whether China will fall apart in 10 years or fall apart in 50 years isn't so, uh, that's entirely not clear. Steve, just to follow it up, this is Larry. Um, I mean, the, the unusual partner in that South Korean and Chinese relationship is the North Koreans. And currently, you know, the United States keeps tens of thousands of troops on the border to protect South Korea from North Korea. And the United States has asked the Chinese to assist in a regime change in North Korea. Um, and one of the promises that um, we had Paul Wolfowitz um, at one of our book clubs, and he said that he had promised the Chinese leadership that all U.S. troops would leave South Korea if, in fact, there was a Korean unification. If there were a Korean unification and the United... First of all, do you believe that the United States would actually... troops would actually leave? And if the U.S. troops did leave, uh, or maybe even asked to leave, um, do you suspect that that would be the final nail uh, so that Korea would join the Chinese orbit? So here, here's the problem. I mean, the problem is always one of credibility in the international environment. It's not a question of whether I would believe that, they, that the troops would leave, but would the South Koreans and the Chinese really believe that American troops would leave? So, and I, I think the problem is, I mean, if you look at, I mean, Seoul is within, within artillery range of North Korea. It's about, I think, 30 miles or something to the DMZ. So the Chinese, the North Koreans could wreak havoc on South Korea. Um, the Chinese, if anybody's in a position to have a regime change take place in, in North Korea, it would have to be the Chinese. The question is, why haven't they done it up to now since the North Koreans are clearly a pain in the ass? 
Um, I think the problem is that they don't necessarily believe what the Americans would say vis-a-vis South Korea. The South Koreans, if they want to free themselves from the danger that's presented by North Korea, whether it's conventional weapons or, or nuclear weapons, I think the the only sort of respite, the only safety that the South Koreans would have could be offered by China. It's only the Chinese that are going to bring down the regime in North Korea, not the Americans. You know, we've tried for years to find a formula that would work, and we've failed time and again. Um, I want to bring Darren into the conversation for a second. Um, Darren, in your book, uh, The Narrow Corridor, you spend a little bit of time talking about um, the economic flexibility of the Chinese economy. In particular, um, that you need to be able to have experimentation, take risks, um, and devote resources beyond just creating universities and patents, but to try uh, new ideas, and that will be a severe limitation on Chinese growth going forward. Um, Part of John Mearsheimer's argument on the risk of China is that they will continue to grow. And um, do you believe that China can continue to grow if it doesn't make these sort of radical changes to its economy? And if it does make the radical changes to its economy in terms of opening up, will that undermine the authoritarian regime that it's uh, based upon? I think these are, thanks Larry, I think these are the million dollar questions. I don't think anybody knows the answers to them. Uh, I have sort of three observations slash questions related to that. The first one is that, you know, in history, there have been many regimes that have grown under despotic, authoritarian, top-down political structures, but typically they have not been able to achieve a lot of innovation, especially in areas that weren't already part of posed problems. So in some sense, from this second, from this observation follows the second one, which is that China is exceptional because it is an authoritarian country, but it is obsessed with innovation and pouring resources into innovative activities, technological change that's either domestic or borrowed or taken from abroad. So it recognizes in some sense that innovation is going to be the Achilles heel of the regime. And it's trying to rectify it. There may be advantages in the future because of the nature of technology. For example, massive amounts of data become very important for technological change. But my hunch based on history and the nature of Chinese growth until now is that they will run into severe problems though probably not enough to completely rule out economic growth, but to severely restrict their economic growth. But that all feeds into a third question in my mind, which relates to the questions, the issues that uh, uh, Alex, uh, Stephen, John, and John have been talking about. And I think it is important for their focus, as well as the question that you pose. And that question is whether when liberal democracies or Western democracies, whatever you want to call them, become stronger and are able to influence global order, does that make it easier or more difficult for other regimes, especially authoritarian regimes like China, to flourish? 
And I think the answer to that is not obvious. And perhaps what we are seeing until, what we have seen until now is that, in fact, the trading structure that the U.S. and European nations have built has created a tremendous opportunity for a country like China that could make growth a priority, mobilize its resources as well as its extremely large and cheap labor force, and change the focus to importing technology, that that sort of non-democratic path became very easy for China. And if that's the case, whether that's going to continue or not is going to be critical, and how the more liberal powers, if you're going to again use that term, although I'm not sure whether that's the best term or not, but how are going to respond to the rise of China. Uh, John Mearsheimer, um, you heard some of the challenges um, by John Eikenberry. I just wanted to know um, where you want to take the conversation from there. John, you may still be on mute. Excuse me. Uh, John made a lot of points, and I don't want to go over all of them, but let me just make two or three quick points. First of all, the subject that we're discussing here is the liberal international order. And I, I want to emphasize the word international for the moment. An, an international order has to include all the great powers. Uh, so when John talks about these uh, orders that include just the democracies, uh, that's obviously going to exclude China and Russia, and in no way is that going to be an international order. And this goes back to the Cold War. It's important to understand that that Western order, order uh, that was so important for winning the Cold War uh, was not an international order. It was a bounded order. It was up against another order which was run by the Soviet Union. So we want to think about what the prospects are for a future international order and what has happened to the liberal international order. Secondly, uh, it's very important to understand that that order that we had during the Cold War was principally concerned for waging security competition against the Soviet Union. Because the Soviet Union disappeared when the Cold War ended and because the Soviet Union lost the Cold War, people today forget what a fierce competition that was between the United States and the Soviet Union, and they forget how profoundly worried the United States was at different points in the Cold War that it was, it was going to lose that competition. We built this order. We stayed in Europe. We built NATO. We helped build the European community all for the purpose of waging this competition with the Soviet Union. That's not to say there weren't other purposes for it. But the fact is that competition went away, and that's when we uh, morphed into a situation where we had a liberal international order. But what's now happening, and this is a profound consequence, is that China is a potential peer competitor. And that fundamentally alters how we look at the world. Uh, and the end result is a security competition sets in. And this is where we're having all this discussion about how East Asian countries relate to China and relate to the United States. You would have never had this conversation during the unipolar moment because the United States was Godzilla. But that world has gone away. We're in a fundamentally different world. 
And with all due respect to John, what he's trying to do is take a world that existed on a different foundation, unipolarity, and he's trying to superimpose it on a foundation of multipolarity. And that's not going to work. Can I just jump in there? I, that, I thought the burden of my remarks were that the rudiments of a liberal international order were built after World War II. It was not a global order. It was a liberal order in the sense that it was the liberal democracies working together to solve problems, generate security. It was not simply as security competition driven by security competition with the Soviet Union, but solving problems that were endemic to liberal democracy, to industrial society, to 20th century modernity. So they were doing lots of things. And there was a revolution in the relations between the liberal democracies in the 1940s that was not simply a backstory of Cold War competition. It was something separate from from the Cold War. It was interactive with it in both directions. But uh, so I, I, I just don't, I don't accept John's first argument that in the 1990s, that's when things started to become liberal international order. It was really the expansion, the inside order became the outside order. Uh, uh, and the outside, it became the outside order because there wasn't any alternative ordering power to <clears throat> offer competition, as Alex said, there now is, and that's important. But it wasn't that something ended and something then began that we call the liberal order. It was the expansion of something that had already been there. And my argument is that's when things started to go wrong, conditionality, the self-help, uh, the, the mutual aid society character, the club character of the liberal order uh, broke down in many ways. And my argument is if liberal order is to be reconstructed, it's going to have to reclaim some of those conditionality-driven logics of cooperation that liberal democracies, uh, in my theory, uh, should still want. But the key difference, it seems to me, is and, and this goes to John's argument about inter, for an order that can be to be called international, it can only be everybody has to be inside. But of course, we had the the communist international order. We had the the Western uh, order, which was itself a form of interstate uh, order. So I I guess I don't quite buy that. The way I kind of put the narrative of world historical change together is that for millennia, we had order built around empires, and then we had an anomalous Europe that pioneered because empire was repeatedly defeated in Europe over many, many centuries, a kind of uh, state system that became called the Westphalian state system that itself became global. And then on top of that, countries that emerged in the age of democratic revolutions in the late 18th and early 19th century started to knit together a relationship on top of both those orders. Part of liberalism tied itself to empire, and eventually in the 20th century, it, it put its lot down with the Westphalian order and built intergovernmental cooperation to advance liberal democratic ends. And that is what generated what we're, call, what we're discussing today, the liberal international order. That order is in trouble partly because the, the logic of global, the globalization of that order failed. And that's where John and I think 
agree that that it's not uh, if part of liberal order is solving problems of liberal democracy but making it glo- global undermines mechanisms that you need to serve that end then there is a, a deep structural contradiction and china is not it wants less not more liberal international order it's attempting a what Habermas would call a alternative modernity project, capitalism without liberalism, capitalism without democracy. It may or may not uh, uh, succeed um, uh, in, in that effort, as Darren has suggested. It, uh, he might bet against it. I, too, might bet against it in the long run. But it is an alternative. But that, having that alternative out there for John Mearsheimer means it's over with for liberal international order. And my view is... Ironically, it might be the new beginning because precisely as it occurred in the 1930s and 40s when existential questions, what kind of polity do you want to live in? What are you willing to do to preserve a way of life that you want? Those were questions we didn't ask in the 1990s. We didn't have to, but we do today. And it sharpens the question, what kind of world do you want to create to, to protect what kinds of values? And it seems to me that's new in the last two or three years. And it's been, it's been made even more vivid because, of course, uh, the, the Trump era has seen uh, forces from inside of that order uh, uh, deployed to, to break it down as well. So the stakes are very high. I don't know what will happen, but it seems to me you can't simply write the obituary now, right when the stakes are this high, and there is 70% of the world that lives inside of countries that are, in one way or another, called democracies, 70%. So uh, I'm not ready to say it's over. All right. Um, One of the... um... I'm sorry, can I just say one thing? I mean, the problem sure. is, so let's say that China... This is Steve Krasner, by the way. I, yeah, I mean, if we look at, at taking Darren, since I, I must admit my, my last book was very much um, based on what Darren had written earlier. If you look at the possibilities for China, I mean, it could... Modernization theory would, would say that China will become rich and then will become democratic. That seems to not be the case. And the question really is, will China become rich and remain autocratic, or will China stall out, or will China even break down into civil war? But even if you have the last two possibilities, that is, even if China falls apart, or if it stagnates, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be safe. I mean, it's perfectly natural for the Chinese to think about pushing the United States out of the Western Pacific. How could they not be thinking of that? I mean, it's perfectly natural, I think, for South Korea to become more dependent on China. It's perfectly natural for China to get, as Alex had said, to get natural resources from Central Asia. So, you know, I think the problem really is that even if China stalls out or even if it falls apart and becomes desperate, it might be even more dangerous for a liberal order. So, I, you know, unless we can fix ourselves internally, Yes. which I am skeptical of, I don't see how things will get better. And look, I mean, to that, by and large, if we're scholars of international politics, we tend to bracket World War II, but look at what happened in the Industrial Revolution. You know, you ended up with World War I and World War II. You ended up with, you know, and, and you've had, you ended up with 95% of the population being agrarian to 5% of the population being agrarian. 
Look at what's happening now. You know, it's been very nice that professors had offices. Clearly, 20 years from now, professors will not have offices. I mean, there are some things we can see we're in the midst of a major technological revolution, and, and keeping the liberal international order together will mean that you have to maintain support for liberalism and democracy in countries that have it now. And we've done a pretty bad job of that. And, you know, all the recent evidence that we have points in the opposite direction, whether it's Trump or Orban or the development of right and left wing parties in Europe. So it's very worrying. And I think the real problem is figuring out how we can make domestic politics better so that they actually work for everybody so they would support a liberal order. Unlike John, I don't think people are interested per se. I don't think they're interested per se in a liberal order. They're interested in a liberal order that works for them. And that's what we haven't succeeded in doing. Um, Turning the topics to international institutions that we created uh, to benefit the U.S. order uh, or the Western order. So we we created institutions like the United Nations, the IMF, the World Bank, NATO, just to pick four. Um, Those institutions may or may not be working um, for U.S. interests. What Alex mentioned earlier was that um, it's going to be very difficult to create new institutions immediately, um, but the current institutions may not be working for us. And so maybe I'll ask the question to John Eikenberry. We, we created these institutions. To what extent do you think that they're still working for us and our objectives? If, for example, how does NATO interrelate with um, c- containing China? Or how does the United Nations help us pursue our world-like goals? Um, there you go. John. Yeah, well, uh, that's a good point. I, I, I do think uh, we are uh, undermining ourselves, uh, as, and, and Trump is, is really leading the charge here in retra- retracting America's position in these global institutions because it's inviting ch- – China in to rewrite those institutions to tilt them away from liberal democratic values, and they're doing that across the boards in lots of different ways. So we're uh, we aren't in the fight, so to speak. And I I think that's a, that that's deeply harmful to use a. I have most of my colleagues on the phone are realists, so I that's very who talk about the national interest. That's very non. Uh, uh, responsive to the American national interest. So I, it's hard for me to believe that that's going to, that, that the U.S. doesn't come back to thinking in terms of what's its long-term interest. How can it preserve its power? How can it legitimate itself? How can it create more a world where it has more friends rather than fewer friends? And if that kind of pragmatic, self-interested, enlightened kind of pursuit of, of, of American interests uh, has any sway, there will be, and there's, there even is today, despite Trump, a kind of uh, understanding across the political spectrum uh, that NATO, the United Nations, the various global institutions serve American interests. They, they serve it in, in uh, helping to legitimate America's uh, role. It helps create a demand for American leadership rather than countries wanting to escape escape the U.S. And the fact that we now have a global competitor, the, the, the China, we should be, uh, it's kind of competitive hegemony. Who's, who can do better for us? Who can solve problems? Who has ideas for mutual gain uh, that we can tie ourselves to? 
China or the United States. So if we were serious about com competing against China, we would be doing more liberal international order building. Uh, and, uh, and I do think that's coming back because I do, uh, Trump is a, an anomaly. We've elected somebody who's put the entire force of the American government, the most powerful government in the world, domestically and internationally, at odds with that order. So this is inside the tent trying to destroy it. And it seems to me that that's, that's not normal, that that's not helpful. It doesn't serve very many people's interests. And that, that at some point, that will be seen as, whoa, what were we thinking? We've damaged ourselves. So anyway, I, yeah, so that's, Larry, anyway, that's my, my narrative. Larry, Larry, this is John Mearsheimer. Could I just say a word or two here? Go. Uh, it's very important to emphasize that Donald Trump ran explicitly against the liberal international order. He said that the United States was going to get out of the business of spreading democracies. He said he was against an open international economy, and you know he loves tariffs. And the man has never seen an institution that he doesn't loathe. And he made that clear when he ran for president. Very important to understand, he was elected. He is in the White House. Now, he was not elected mainly because of foreign policy, but in good part because of foreign policy. All of this is to say, the liberal international order had failed the American people. That's why he got elected. So when John Eikenberry tells you all these wonderful things about the liberal international order, it's important to understand that the American people didn't agree with John Eikenberry, right, and that's why they elected Donald quickly. Trump. Larry, you know, and, and John, I, you know, I think it's not that the liberal order failed the American people. It failed some of the American people. You yeah, know, no, most of 90%, the American people did vote for Donald Trump. But the fact is that most people did pretty well, but some people did really badly. They did worse than their parents. They lost their jobs. Uh, they don't know how they can get their kids educated. They don't have any money. They're alienated from the present society. Uh, those are the people I supported Trump. So it isn't that Trump was elected because, it, because the liberal order had failed all Americans, but it clearly had failed a large part of the United States. I agree. Well, I, Larry, I, I, agree, I, with, say, I agree with I that, but... The WHO did not fail the American people. NATO did not fail the American people. The United Nations has not failed the American people. The Paris Climate Accord did not fail the American people. I mean, the, the American economy is rigged against uh, most of the people on the lower spectrum, and that, that was partly because the, the global economic order produced outcomes that were ra radically unequal and that that is where i think a lot of the uh the reputational disdain for liberal international order came from but it, a lot of that as we know is technology and things that have to be fixed but it's not global architecture of multilateral cooperation that that that's not we need more who uh today we need a, a more uh pragmatic trade agreement so that we, we the, the people who voted for Trump aren't necessarily winning with Trump's uh, promise to bring it all down. Five all right. farmers did, in did, Iowa. Did Stephen, 
they're now winning I- materially. That that I think is clear, and we all recognize that. But it's kind. Of, you know, if you ask the obvious question, which is why were why were these people who are in lower income levels supporting Trump when Trump seems to be doing things against them? Well, one answer is that they're stupid. And the other answer is that they feel deeply alienated from the present political system, whether it's run by Democrats or run by Republicans. For 40 years, they've seen the real incomes decline. And I think that's a real problem. And I don't know how to fix it. Yeah. Yeah. Darren, did you want if to I make could, Yes, I wanted to make a, one point. I guess uh, a lot of this conversation uh, goes on as if there is a single liberal international order, but there are many possible details of an international system based on global institutions. For example, when you think about economic globalization, how much it protects capital versus labor, what types of technology transfer it engenders, what types of actions towards climate change or tax havens it facilitates. And that heterogeneity among the types of globalization and international order may be as important for some of the questions that we are asking. And some of that is ideological, some of it is because of the political power of certain types of capital owners or certain political parties. But I think it may be useful to distinguish, A, the problems of the specific types of globalization and international order that we have cultivated, and B, the future possibilities for alternatives that may or may not work better for developing countries. Again, if it's particular type of international order that gives more power to uh, American businesses and facilitates tax havens, etc., uh, that might be less attractive for certain developing nations uh, and more attractive to others. So I think those are questions that perhaps we should also bring into the conversation. I want to go in a, in a different direction for a second, and I want to bring it back to COVID. So one of the interesting things that we've been sort of talking about is um, more than just an individual state, but a federation of states working together. And one of the most shocking elements of the COVID crisis was how quickly we abandoned um, the international context for the domestic. Um, I'll start with Europe. Europe has been arguing that there's some sort of European Union, but as soon as the COVID hit, there was rationing of resources uh, ventilators or what other type of medical devices um, where France and Germany would not send equipment to Italy or vice versa around that entire European uh, aspect. Um, nations became very immediately concerned about hoarding uh, medical supplies. Um, and it goes beyond just the nation state. Um, in the state of New York, Governor Cuomo was threatening to go grab ventilators from upstate New York and bring it to the city. Um, I was wondering uh, who in the audience would like to comment about when the rubber meets the road, um, it's all for the tribe, it's for the individual, um, it's for the nation state and not for the greater international uh, beings. Who wants to take that one? I'll say, this is John Mearsheimer, I'll say a word or two about this. I, I think it's hardly surprising at all. Nationalism is the most powerful political ideology on the planet. 
all you have to do is just look around and you notice that virtually the entire planet is populated with nation states. The concept of a nation state is an embodiment of, of, of nationalism. Sovereignty matters greatly to nation states. And the principal job that a nation state has is providing and protecting for its people. The survival of its people is what matters the most. So when you have a pandemic that at first looks like it threatens the uh, survival of large numbers of people in any particular state, the first instinct of that state is going to be to take care of its own people. This is just the way the world works. It's a fundamentally anti-liberal notion because liberalism is a universalistic ideology. Universal, as a universalistic ideology, it basically says that all people on the planet are the same. You know, the basic adage that all men or all persons are created equal. But you run that up against nationalism, which is very particularistic, very tribal in nature, and nationalism wins every time. It's a much more powerful ideology. And what happened here with the pandemic is you created the situation where the survival of peoples were at stake, and the end result is that states took over. This is not to say you had or you're going to have zero cooperation, but the basic name of this game for leaders is to take care of their own people. And that, to me, is hardly surprising. John Eikenberry, in your Foreign Affairs article, your first sentence states, when future historians think of the moment that marked the end of the liberal world order, they may point to the spring of 2020, the moment when the U.S. and its allies facing the gravest public health threat and economic catastrophe of the post-war era could not even agree on a single communique of common cause. Not since the 1930s has the world been this bereft of even the most rudimentary forms of cooperation. How do you explain the breakdown of the order to, to deal with this crisis? Yeah, well, I, I, I think, uh, as I mentioned earlier, uh, the, um, uh, the, and I think there may be agreement on this across across the across the board here that uh, the uh, leading states of the system have looked inward, and they there has been a a kind of uh, uh, pulling back from commitments, a kind of short-term thinking. Uh, there's been a uh, as I think Steve Krasner was mentioning, there's a a kind of uh, backlash against. Uh, internationalism, broadly speaking, there haven't been powerful voices that have been trying to make enlightened arguments about, yes, it's true, uh, uh, security of our own people uh, matters most, but in the long term, our people will be most safe and, and, and protected in a system that uh, concerts our resources to create capacities to solve our problems. So uh, it's, there's a kind of breakdown in the ideology and the uh, elite support for institutions that uh, uh, provide services that show that uh, a kind of internationalism works. So, um, so the, I think it's confluence of all these different things. I think the, uh, again, this is kind of an echo of Steve Krasner. I think that the, what we, are suffering to some extent, not, not simply Trump, who is, I think, 
outside of the con- American consensus on all sorts of things, from security to trade to many other things. So I do see a bounce back coming, uh, and it could be a pretty, a pretty uh, uh, significant bounce back after Trump leaves, uh, partly as people see the mess that the alternative to a kind of internationalism generates. Uh, but it wasn't simply him. The 2008 financial crisis, the Iraq War, uh, the failure to uh, to see kind of the liberal order effectively dealing with a rising China. So there's there's a lot of failure, missteps, um, uh, 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 unfulfilled promises, um, uh, all of this that that have accumulated, you might say, and then you have this crisis where really for the first time uh, in American experience, we have a leader uh, who isn't taking the crisis and, and saying, we will step forward and help generate ideas and institutional solutions that will uh, create multiple winners across the board and advance our interests while generating uh, wider support. And And so there is a kind of it happened at the end of the of the, the Cold War. It happened in in the aftermath of the two world wars. Um, uh, it, it's extraordinary how the U.S. has really been uh, absent for this one. And um, so, let me bring let me bring Alex back in for a second. Alex, in your opening remarks, you said that Trump wasn't an anomaly; he was an accelerant. And John Eikenberry was just saying he is um, an anomaly and not an accelerant, maybe the opposite. Um, why do you think that Trump is an accelerant? Or that Trump is not an anomaly, I should say? Well, I mean, I'm going to try and have it both ways here, right? <laughs> in classic style. I'll, I'll say he's, he's an accelerant in terms of the processes that we outline in the book, right? Um, Chinese and Russian international and regional fabrics were being built in the mid-2000s. Small countries were pushing back against political and economic conditions and invoking alternative patrons um, since also the mid-2000s and later. And we've seen illiberal transnationalism, um, you know, flourish lately, but its seeds have been operating before. I think what's distinct about Trump and John mentioned this, is that you have an element of the executive branch, right, that has actually furthered this illiberal agenda, right? And so when you think about, say, reactions to Orban, right, rising in Hungary and a proud illiberal leader in the heart of the European Union, and what was the U.S. reaction to Orban kicking out, essentially, the Central European University? Um, pretty much zero, right? Um, in any other administration, you would have had um, real pressure put on. You wouldn't have had this, well, this is an internal man- matter, or because this was founded by the money of George Soros originally in the 90s, sort of good riddance. No, this would have been an issue of the highest diplomatic, I would say, status, um, especially given the multiple billions of dollars that have been invested in this institution. Instead, it was allowed to sort of go. Now, that's not the most... Um, pressing issue in some ways. It doesn't rise, you know, to the level of sort of high security or sort of financial crisis uh, 
uh, types of level, but I think it is indicative of the kinds of changes that you're seeing in that one part of the executive is appointing emissaries in different parts that are okay with illiberal policies uh, 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 and outcomes and threats. So I think, I think John's right in, 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 in that sense. Um, my own sense on COVID is that it magnifies a lot of the institutional dysfunctions that you see across the world, including in our own country. I find the Russia-U.S. comparison really telling when you see the variation in which different states and regions in both countries have coped with this, as well as some of the cronyism uh, and the steering of sort of government contracts um, to sort of cope uh, in both areas. And so, you know, I think there's a sense in which, uh, you know, the hood is sort of taken off and you see institutional functionality and dysfunctionality, right? At one extreme, you have the country of Turkmenistan that denied COVID was happening and prohibited the use of the word COVID. Uh, and, you know, mandatory mask requirements are now to protect against dust, right? COVID is still not being used, even though the epidemic now seems to be going. To relative competent, yes, shutting down the borders, deglobalizing, but in a lot of advanced industrial European, Western European democracies, the state basically playing a high percentage of sort of, you know, local salaries and businesses, in essence, unlimited borrowing until we get sort of back to normal without the kinds of crony dynamics that we've seen elsewhere. So, you know, I, I do think it's a mix of both. I think the structural factors predate Trump, but Trump and especially the, uh, the discretion he holds in the executive um, has, uh, uh, you know, certainly sent some of these illiberal dynamics into hyperdrive. I want to bring uh, Katie Kaufman back to the conversation. Um, Katie, you spoke uh, a while back now about um, survey results um, related to the risk, uh, health risks and death rates and chances of being infected by... Um, by COVID. And what you found was inconsistent with, I'll call it maybe scientific fact, that um, the young seemed much more worried than the old, that the young uh, were more worried about uh, infection, were, were more worried about being hospitalized, and were more worried that they would die. Um, and not only more worried, but thought the, the likelihood of these events were, um, were more concerning to them than it was to the elderly. But then there's also in the sort of cognitive dissonance, seemed to understand that it was riskier uh, to be elderly. Why do you think that um, these populations uh, have their estimates incorrect, both uh, the young being too worried and the old being not concerned enough? Why are they getting this thing wrong? And what does it say about populations and their ability to understand complex phenomena in general? Yeah, I guess I'd start by saying it's, it's sort of an enormously difficult risk forecasting problem. I mean, we welcome participants into surveys all the time that ask them to make much easier types of risk assessments and, and still see mistakes, and, and this is a remarkably challenging problem. So I think none of us were particularly surprised that they would might be off. Uh, it was just the, the way in which they were off in the sense that the, the younger people generally seem to be so much more concerned than the older people that was really the surprise. Um, you know, I, I think there's a lot of 
reasonableness in their answers. When you think about, you know, I wasn't able to talk about all the measures in the survey today, but if, if you look at sort of the scope of answers they give over the survey, we asked them about other types of health issues as well, like heart attacks and cancer and general risks of hospitalization and death. Uh, these people aren't throwing out completely crazy numbers for everything. They, they tend to have things in a reasonable ballpark and the relationship between one type of risk and another seems to make sense. It's just a magnitude problem. And I think it can be hard. I mean, there's a reason in the paper that we don't sort of benchmark compared to objective rates. I, I think even among the most expert of us, it's still hard to say exactly what objective risks of death or hospitalization are, or even chances of infection for a given person or, or a given uh, locality. So it's a hard problem. I want to give our respondents lots of credit because uh, I don't think their numbers are completely crazy, at least at the median. Um, you know, in terms of what drives this difference between the young and the old, I, I think we're still trying to get to the bottom of it. I mean, the couple of things I'd add is that the beliefs they report at least correlate also with their self-reported behavior. So it's also the case in our data that older people are less likely to report sort of avoiding routine care, like filling prescriptions or visiting the doctor. Uh, they're less likely to report being reluctant to visit a hospital or an emergency room if they were to have a medical emergency. They indicate they've been going out more times per week on average. Uh, so it seems to line up, at least with self-reported behavior. So I, we think it's real. Uh, and the question is really why. I, and so far, I can just tell you, we've asked a bunch of things that don't seem to be nailing it. And, and so we have much more to learn. Maybe just to follow up on that, um, do you think, and I don't want just a big picture here, um, that the younger generation appears to be a little bit more fragile um, and that the older generations have been through World War II or they've been through the Depression or they've been through very traumatic incidents and therefore aren't shocked to see this first um, catastrophic event for, for the younger generation? Do you think that might be part of it? And second, um, if you ask someone in their last year of life to shelter in place and not see someone uh, versus a young person who has their whole life in front of them, uh, would you expect differences in behavior just based on risk-reward and potential payoffs? Yeah, it's great. Uh, so, uh, you know, both things that have come up among us as we've tried to analyze the results, I'll, I'll tell you that as a set of co-authors, we have a diverse representation of ages, and I think among some of our older co-authors, this sort of adversity story has been more popular, right, that young people just haven't been through anything hard, and so this is maybe a panic-inducing event. They just have no way of sort of coping or processing with an event like this. We don't have perfect data to speak to that, but what I will tell you in the second wave of data collection we did, we asked questions about the type of experience or the type of adversity that participants in our survey have experienced from poverty, thinking about military service, working in a dangerous job, um, you know, struggling with food security. So we asked about a range of sort of experiences that would be difficult or, or hard to get through. And we also asked them to self-assess how much adversity they've experienced in their life in a more subjective way. Neither of those things seem to have any predictive power for how they think about the risks of COVID. Uh, so it doesn't seem likely to be the primary explanation, but we don't have perfect data on it. Um, in terms of those risk-reward trade-offs you bring up, I think it's a completely fair point, right, that you know, the decisions you might make about how to spend the next year would vary a lot depending upon how much time you forecast having life, uh, having left in your life. And so I think the question then is, well, we might understand those types of behaviors, you know, 
how does that seep its way into your actual risk perceptions when you're just asked to think about sort of the risk to a thousand people like you? Well, it might be the case that you're really interested in going out. Is it sort of a motivated belief then to lead you to believe that it's actually less dangerous? And sort of the strength of that motivated reasoning would have to be quite high to explain our results in part because not only are they sort of what we think of as dampening the risk for older people like themselves, they're also dampening the risk for younger people, right? Sort of across the board, they get the gradient right, but they still think younger people are facing relatively low risk compared to the rest of the sample. So it's certainly possible, but it has to be a pretty full sort of uh, self-rationalization to, I think, explain the pattern in our data. But I, I agree with the logic about how they might make choices about how to spend their time. Great. Um, I want to uh, start something I've never done before on the call, and is I want to ask my speakers to make a few predictions uh, based upon their frameworks. And what I mean by that is, uh, and I'll start with John Mearsheimer. John, you have this um, realistic framework where you have this new bipolar system where the United States is going to have to contain China. Uh, if you believe that model, um, how would you expect the United States to respond to that challenge? Um, do you, what sort of institutions do you expect the United States to create as a balancing technique? And what sort of predictions would you make with regards to our relations in, in the international sphere? In other words, would you predict, for example, that the Chinese-Russian relationship will uh, denigrate and Russian-U.S. relations will improve? Um, do you expect to have a NATO uh, for the Southeast Asia, um, what kind of predictions would your model forecast for containing China? Uh, I'll try to make this as brief as possible because it raises all sorts of issues. I, I think the United States is already in the process of trying to create an alliance structure uh, in Asia, mainly in East Asia, but to include countries like India as well and it will end up over time creating a NATO-like alliance structure there. Uh, with regard to the Russians, I do think over time the Russians will come to fear the Chinese more than the Americans, and the Russians will be allied with the United States, rather loosely, I would argue, uh, against uh, China. With regard to Europe, I think that NATO as a military alliance is useless for dealing with the China threat. I think the Europeans more generally can't help us contain China from a military point of view. But I think they do matter economically. I think the United States is not going to want the Europeans to trade dual-use technologies or sophisticated technologies with the Chinese and, in effect, feed the beast. So I think the United States will go to great lengths to try and keep the Europeans uh, as uh, on, on our side of the economic equation. I think as far as the Persian Gulf or the Middle East more generally is concerned, uh, I think that there's already big evidence that the uh, Chinese are deeply interested in the Gulf. They'll tell you behind closed doors that they're building a blue water navy for the purpose of projecting power into the Gulf. Uh, we have foolishly driven the Iranians and the Chinese uh, into each other's arms. And I think over time, the Chinese alliance with Iran will strengthen, and they will have uh, more influence, the Chinese will, in the Middle East or in the Persian Gulf uh, than they have had, certainly in the past, and that we will compete with them there. Just at a very general level, I would argue that this security competition that is 
setting in now and is likely to get more intense with time will have a military dimension. I think that's clear from my comments just now, but it's important to emphasize that it will have an economic dimension as well. I think the United States, whether Joe Biden is the uh, president or Donald Trump gets reelected, uh, will go to some lengths, if not great lengths, to slow down Chinese economic growth, to decouple the two economies so that the United States uh, does not create a situation where China uh, beats us technologically. So again, this security competition will have an economic uh, and a military dimension, uh, regardless of who's the president of the United States. Steve Krasner, what are, what are your predictions? Yeah, so I, I mean, I agree with John. I think the only thing I would say is that regard, I, the sort of problems that are presented by China are recognized by Democrats as well as Republicans. The only disagreement I had, we might have something not quite as formal as NATO in East Asia, but I think we'll lose South, as I said before, I think it's the chances of losing South Korea are great. The chances of losing Japan are small. I think in the end, and I think, I don't know, I shouldn't put these words in, in Darren's mouth. I think China will fail, um, but that failure will mean that it will be a formidable regional power, but it will not be a global power. Okay. Alex? Yeah, I actually um, am on the other side of the China-Russia prediction game. I think the more asymmetrical Chinese power becomes vis-a-vis -vis Russia, uh, the more Russia will capitulate to whatever the Chinese agenda and demands are. Hmm. And I think They'll, they'll, they'll do so um, by invoking this idea that they're united against, you know, the remnants of the liberal international order. I think, you know, this will be more marked in a Biden uh, regime than the second Trump administration. Um, but I do think that, uh, you know, the, the, the Russians are more than rhetorically locked in. They're locked in in all sorts of ways. And, of course, many analysts and policymakers will privately express concern about this. But at the moment, they really don't see, um, you know, I think the day in which they can sort of reasonably balance or, or hedge. Um, and then I guess, you know, my prediction, and this is sort of foolish, is out of my area, it's more domestic politics. I wonder if we do have a kind of a Biden administration, this kind of, you know, attempt to put in robust kinds of international structures again. I wonder if this will become um, a dividing line in sort of domestic partisanship, right, between Republicans and Democrats. John Eikenberry is, of course, right that we had many of these elements were a consensus in the past. Of course, we disagreed over kind of the bounds of multilateralism and so forth. But I do wonder um, whether Trumpism has also opened the door uh, to much less consensus on foreign policy and America's uh, purpose in the world and the kinds of means it would support than we had in the past. Thanks. Great. John Eikenberry. Yes, well, that's a great question. And, uh, you know, I, I'm kind of the lone liberal here today. And, I, you know, liberalism, liberal internationalism doesn't have a kind of theory that generates predictions as readily as realism. There's a sense that I, I think liberals, we could, in fact, fall into a future that is very uh, a kind of broken uh, power game with very little cooperation. Uh, but I think liberals would say if that happens, uh, we have harmed ourselves because there's a better way and there are constituencies who would want to try to build a 
a, a, a cooperative system that would, on balance, look something li- like a liberal order. Uh, but li- liberal internationalism is, is sort of a, a flag without an army. It is always a set of ideas, a project for solving problems and coping with liberal democracies travel through modernity. It's always had to make alliances with other powerful forces out there, nationalism, empire, imperialism, uh, a capitalism, uh, a great power rivalry, hegemonic projects. And it's, it's kind of uh, always kind of had to build coalitions with with others uh and others have bought into liberal internationalism as a as a, a means uh, while others bought into it as an end uh, so it's it's always uh a kind of contested uncertain uh we look back 250 years always been a close run thing the post 1989 period is an anomaly most of the time liberal democracies are troubled and uh and conflicted and searching for new solutions um nothing is ever ever settled nothing is ever done it's, for me the question to make a, a sort of prediction it's a really a question will uh the alignments of the future be in part driven by uh how by uh regime type which is to say will liberal democracies rediscover their solidarity in the face of the rise of of truly a more world historical uh, competitor to their type than has been seen since the end of the Cold War. So that's if if the answer is yes, then I can tell you a lot about the future of, of alliances and the rebuilding of of the uh, liberal democratic world. But in the final instance, in the competition between, we'll call it the liberal project and the uh, or the free world project and the uh, Chinese project, uh, it will ultimately be defined in terms of whether the, the countries that are part of that coalition are themselves thriving. That's, that's Steve Krasner's point about domestic politics, but also whether those countries in, in, in putting out a vision of international order have put out a vision that actually on the ground solves problems that people care about, the kind of performance legitimacy of international order. And the liberal international order has been losing performance legitimacy over the last generation uh, because it seems like it's not solving problems. And indeed, with the financial crisis, maybe the Iraq war, it seems to be complicitous in the generating of problems. So can it be the kind of order that gives traction to people trying to solve climate change, pandemic, solving the problem of the next pandemic, arms control, proliferation problems, uh, 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 governing technology so it doesn't undercut working people, these sorts of things. So it's kind of problem solving as a guide to the future. What system is going to do the best job and I think the, 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 you know, the jury's out on that. Great. Darren, do you have any predictions? Well, uh, I have many predictions, and most of them will probably be wrong. But uh, following up on what John Eikenberry said, I guess one issue is whether, again, there's a single liberal order or not. My prediction, weekly held, would be that 
we would see more of a multipolarity that it's not just China versus NATO, but Europe or parts of Europe and US would diverge increasingly about governance of technology, governance of big tech companies, competition, taxes, especially international tax treaties and tax havens, climate change, and also probably about other details, more than details of international global economic relations. And that sort of uh, divergence might be healthy or unhealthy. That would depend on whether one side can play the leadership and the two can agree on certain institutional features for governance of the global, international, and political relations. But I think it's likely that there won't be a monolithic liberal view on the most defining questions of the future. Mm. Great. Um, all right, this is the part of the show now where we have uh, a note of optimism. Um, actually, I haven't really viewed this particularly as a, that negative of a show compared to some of our others. Uh, like when Michael Alsterham suggested that there would be a million deaths from uh, COVID. This is just a disagreement as to how we're going to balance China in the scheme of things. Uh, but I'm going to start out, um, Katie, if you had to just make a comment about what you're optimistic about, what would that be? I, I think it's just the fact that it, when it comes to coronavirus, I mean, we're learning more and more about it over time. And one of the few things in our data that does seem to have a real big impact on how people think about this disease is their personal experiences, knowing someone who's had it, knowing someone who's been hospitalized, knowing someone who's passed away. And obviously, it's a terrible thing as it becomes more prevalent in all of our communities. But the upside of that is that increased personal experience, that better understanding the ability to sort of wrap our heads around it in a more reasonable way as the same time that scientists are learning more and more about it. So I, I think we're going to become better informed and I, I still have hope about our ability to, to act on better information. Steve Krasner, are you optimistic about anything? No, I'm, not, I'm actually, I'd be optimistic. Here's a, the critical thing for me to be optimistic would be you have to assign a program that we could support with a proper name. And I'm pessimistic because I don't, at least in the United States, I don't see that happening. You know, I think Biden will probably win the presidency. I don't know whether he's going to address any of these problems effectively. So if you think about migration or health, healthcare, or the police, or the deeper problem of what you're going to do with a large proportion of the American population that's now alienated, I would like to see uh, a politician in the United States, someone with a proper name that we could actually name, who actually support the right thing. I don't see that now. That's what makes me pessimistic. I had a feeling you were going to be pessimistic. I didn't guess the content. Hmm. Um, Darren, you're up. Well, let me return back to the issue of technology. I think uh, I am not optimistic that we are going to quickly and effectively build new institutions for dealing with the future of technology, regulation of technology, direction of technology, what uh, various different algorithms are going to mean for jobs, for democracy, for social discourse. But the optimism is still rooted in residual form in the fact that most of those are choices. There's nothing determinate or preordained about the path of technology. 
if we solve our political problems, not an easy one, but if we solve our political problems, we can build better institutions for dealing with technology. Great. Alex? Well, I just think the, the attention on ordering dynamics and on global governance offers a challenge but an opportunity um, to really articulate what it is that these institutions and norms and cooperative structures are meant to do. What problems, as John said, are they trying to solve? How does this appeal to future challenges that are especially on the mind of younger generations? I think we've been on autopilot with this consensus for far too long. You can call it elite politics or not, but I do think it's time to sort of re-engage and re-articulate just some fundamental tenets about why it is that states engage or should engage in cooperative behaviors. John Eikenberry? Yes, uh, thank you. Uh, well, I'll end on a kind of a more historical philosophical note that looking back and read, reading history in, in the context of today, uh, we learn that you know, breakthroughs and rebirths and reinventions tend to happen uh, when uh, things seem most bleak uh, at the darkest moment, uh, whether it's the uh, uh, Lincoln and uh, the Gettysburg Address, whether it's uh, uh, FDR and World War II. And, 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 and that makes me think that often when it seems most bleak, perhaps today's crisis, there is, there's, there's always something around the corner. There are, uh, there are, we're kind of dialectically counter movements emerge and we look, we look over the abyss and we see we don't want that. And you, you, historically people have had their greatest dreams right when they've confronted their greatest nightmares. And I, I think of this uh, FDR, who I, I've been very fascinated with this summer, the COVID has led me to go back and read a lot of biography of, of FDR. And uh, he was, of course, during the war, thinking about the future at the darkest moment, uh, the most violent war in world history, that the outcome was uncertain, the democracy could fail altogether. Um, and so he gave a speech to the uh, Canadian Parliamentary Assembly in August 1943, and he was kind of responding to those who were ridiculing his ideals. Remember the Four Freedoms, the Atlantic Charter, and he said, I am everlastingly angry only at those who assert vociferously that the Four Freedoms and the Atlantic Charter are nonsense because they are unattainable. If those people had lived a century and a half ago, they would have sneered and said that the Declaration of Independence was utter uh, piffle. If they had lived nearly a thousand years ago, they would have laughed uproariously at the ideals of the Magna Carta. And if they had lived uh, several thousand years ago, they would have derided Moses for uh, when he came down from the mountain with the Ten Commandments. And so FDR says, we concede that these great teachings are not perfectly lived up to today, but I would rather be a builder than a wrecker, hoping always that the structure of life is growing, not dying. So there's a kind of a, a kind of a, I don't, was, is it naive? A kind of a seat of the pants, uh, we can do it kind of attitude. And that's as much in our DNA as uh, alt-right uh, rejectionism. And so there is a kind of uh, impulse that's kind of, hard, we're hardwired to look at uh, how we can do things differently and perhaps better. And I think that's uh, part of the human condition. And that will surprise us in the years ahead. Great, John. Thank you. John Mearsheimer, you, you get the last one. You get the last word. Thank you, Larry. I actually want to build uh, on what John Eikenberry said, and by and large agree with him. Uh, 
I don't have much reason for optimism, but to the extent that I do, I think one can make an argument along the lines that he did. That we are in such big trouble now uh, that it's just essential that we do something to fix the problem. John, in his comments before, liked to argue that Donald Trump is outside the consensus. Those were John's words. But I think John didn't get it exactly right. Trump is outside the elite consensus. It's the elites. It's people like John who hate Donald Trump, people at universities who hate Donald Trump, people in the media who hate Donald Trump. Again, he got elected president of the United States. And I think the reason that so many people are down on the elite, and one reason that I'm so suspicious of the elite consensus is because I think the elites have failed us. I don't like the elite consensus. If we have a restoration of the elite consensus with Joe Biden, we just go on and on. We need some radical surgery to fix the problem. And the only way you're going to get radical surgery, and again, this is where I agree with John, is when you have uh, maybe an existential crisis, uh, an extreme emergency, call it what you want. And if you look at the problems that we now have in the United States, and you think about what are going to be the economic consequences of the pandemic down the road, and you think of the problems that we have on the foreign policy front trying to deal with a country the size of China and with the wealth of China, we really have got to get our house in order. So I think one can make an argument that there is cause for optimism. This is sort of a functional argument that we really have no choice but to fix things, and functional arguments have their limits. But I think a good case could be made, as John said, that given the problems that we face, given their magnitude, we will rise to the occasion and do the right thing. I can say is, let's hope so. Thank you. Well, I knew this was going to be a fabulous discussion, um, and it really was. And I want to thank the speakers uh, for engaging in such an interesting debate. Uh, I also want to highlight uh, and market our next week's call for what happens next. Uh, it will be on racial justice and Silicon Valley to be co-hosted with my friend Rick Banks from Stanford Law School, uh, reminding you again that will include Stanford President uh, John Hennessy, uh, benchmark capital partner Bill Gurley, Charlie Moore, the founder of Rocket Lawyer, John Rice uh, from Management Leadership for Tomorrow, uh, and others. Uh, so until next week, thank you to our listeners. Uh, thank you very much for listening. Uh, that's it. Thank you very much. Thanks to all. Thank you to the speakers. Bye-bye. Thanks, Larry. Thank You're you. You're very welcome. You're welcome. Thanks, Larry. Mm, all the best. Bye-bye. Yeah. Thank you. Bye-bye.